You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Friday, December the 17th. It's a bright morning here in TW11 and the most significant news in the racing world this morning and one that has reverberated around the globe is that Asheen Murphy, the multiple champion jockey, has relinquished his riding license with immediate effect. Uh, this is aligned with a suite of charges that have been set before him by the British Horse Racing Authority. Cornelius Lysett, just tell us why Asheen Murphy has relinquished his license. Big, big story this, clearly for British Racing, relinquished his uh, license. And uh, this is in order to, quote, engage fully with medical support. Rehabilitation, rehab is mentioned by him in his part of the statement, which has come out jointly with the British Horse Racing Authority. Uh, at some point, uh, on top of all this, uh, he, he's going to do this rehab, but he'll have to answer charges which are being brought by the British Horse Racing Authority against him. Uh, a number of charges. One relates to the breaking of COVID regulations in September 2020, which he appears to acknowledge in, in that statement issued alongside the authority. Uh, secondly, a serious charge about misleading the authority. And thirdly, a very serious charge, uh, as, as serious as, as it gets, really, bringing racing into disrepute. Plus, uh, two other charges uh, related to failing alcohol tests in 2021, one at Newmarket in October uh, and uh, one at Chester in May. And um, it's worth noting they come on top of a failure at Salisbury in July uh, 2019. It had been planned, said this uh, statement, which came from the British Horse Racing Authority relatively late in the afternoon uh, on Thursday. Uh, it had been intended there would be a hearing uh, last Friday, Friday the 10th of uh, December. But uh, the authority says prior to the hearing, the, it received submissions from Oshin Murphy's legal team regarding his welfare, supported by medical evidence, and stated that uh, Oshin Murphy had made a decision to relinquish his flat jockey's license while he engages fully with medical support. Bearing these submissions in mind, it was agreed with Mr Murphy's representatives that the proposed hearing would be postponed to take place at a later date when it is deemed appropriate considering the welfare of Mr Murphy. And Tim Naylor, who's Director of Integrity and Regulation at the Authority, uh, says in regulating the sport, we must always strike the balance between the importance of upholding the rules uh, and being mindful of the well-being of those uh, who we regulate. The welfare of our participants is an absolute priority. Um, and in uh, his part of this joint statement, Oshin Murphy says, on returning from abroad in September 2020, I failed to follow the COVID protocols set out by the British Horse Racing Authority in breaking these rules and attempting to mislead the authority I've let my governing body down, along with trainers, owners, staff, sponsors and family, uh, for which I want to apologise. In addition to this, there have been two racecourse incidents linked to alcohol during 2021. It became obvious to me. This is uh, this is this feels as though sort of coming from the heart. It became obvious to me and to everyone else that I needed to seek serious help in recognition of this. 
I've relinquished my license and will now focus on my rehabilitation. I'm grateful to the BHA for agreeing to postpone the discipline hearing until I've been able to take these steps. And he ends, whether I deserve it or not, many kind people have stood by me and I really appreciate their support. I'm deeply embarrassed and regret my actions. So on the one hand, we've got a disciplinary story here, uh, charges against the three-time champion jockey. And on the other hand, I think we've got a, a, a very sort of human story here. Somebody who is, to, to use an expression we use quite often in the, in the media when we don't know the details, he's fighting demons. Um, and some people would be very supportive of this charismatic character who's been three-time champion jockey. Uh, others will say, you know, he's a little so-and-so. Um, and I think he's sort of half acknowledging that. But clearly, it's a very, very big story for not just British, but for, for European and world horse racing. Uh, I've been trying to uh, ask a few questions of the British Horse Racing Authority this morning. It's, a, it's quite an unusual case, this. Indeed, the BHA concede that this is the first time that they have known in their, in their memory a case such as this. And therefore, it will require both liaison with Sheen Murphy's legal team and a deal of common sense to work out when to hold the hearing. And we don't have an official date for that as yet. A couple of uh, procedural points. One question that's been asked by plenty of you is, why did we know about uh, Sheen Murphy's failed uh, alcohol test at Newmarket, but we didn't know about his failed test several months earlier at Chester in May 2021. And the reason for that is that Newmarket was a breathalyzer test. If you fail a breathalyzer, that is immediately then notified to the stewards and you get stood down on the day. The Chester test was a urine sample. Obviously, you don't get the result until a few days later, and then it goes into an investigative tray. I then asked, well, why did that still take until now? Uh, to emerge, and the BHA didn't want to divulge details of why that particular process had been had been delayed at this stage. In terms of the cumulative effect of multiple alcohol offences, you'll remember that Ashin failed a test in July 2019. That means his failed test at Chester in May 2021 was just within the 24 months. So two offences within 24 months. That is an, uh, a maximum penalty of 21 days, with the entry point at 14 days. Not not too severe for relatively minor infringements, but a third offence within 36 months, as the new market offence was, then that triggers a much bigger penalty. It's 60 to 180 days with a 90 day, so effectively a three month entry point, which you would have thought would be somewhere in the ballpark. And that is before you even get to the charges under breaches of COVID protocol, which are much more serious. And again, I ask the question, why? When this offence took place in September 2020, has it taken until now? And the BHA were keen to stress that the answer really is in, with, is in the report because 24.6, Asheen Murphy has been charged with misleading the BHA regarding his true location. And J19, the most serious charge, acting in a manner prejudicial to the proper conduct and good reputation of horse racing, the BHA confer confirmed that was specifically a combination of A, breaking the COVID rules at a particularly serious time, and B, the way in which Asheen Murphy has conducted himself towards the BHA during the course of that investigation. And that, to my eye anyway, is the most serious of all the charges he faces. In addition, the original hearing was scheduled for Friday the 10th of December. Now, in order to have a suspension at the least damaging time of the year, you would have thought that would have been a good time for Asheen Murphy to have a hearing if you're going to be expedient about it. 
And there is a feeling that the fact that this may yet be deferred gives ballast to the sincerity of his of his medical claim. That said, Cornelius, uh, he and his legal team will be banking on the fact that the relinquishing of his license will mean that when he does get a sentence, because he appears to be uh, not really putting forward many mitigating circumstances, uh, that that will count as time served and will will you know, any ban he does get will start from the time that he's relinquished his license rather than the time of the hearing. And there is precedent for that, isn't there? There have been a number of uh, of cases where people have been accused, where jockeys have been accused of perhaps a, a drugs offence where they've relinquished their licence and then that has been taken into account when uh, the disciplinary panel actually passes, uh, passes penalty. So, no, clearly it is something that we, um, we can't prejudge. It's something that for, for the panel, but it's something to certainly uh, bear in mind. Um, the, the other thing I, I think that Tim Naylor says in his um, statement from the BHA, the charges will be considered in front of an independent disciplinary panel in the early part of 2022. Well, I've no idea what the early part of 2022 is concerned, but if he's genuine about rehab, rehabilitation, and he uses that expression in his statement, then Oshie Murphy is clearly not going to be, you know, it's not going to be happening just after Christmas, is it? Because rehab is rehab, and if taken seriously, and he seems to imply that uh, that it is being taken seriously, this could take some time. So I, I, I just, I, I don't think we can even begin to speculate, certainly not usefully, in terms of any sort of timeline. But what we can be certain of, the one thing of which we can be certain, is that uh, if convicted on all the charges, then Oshin Murphy, who's been one of the brightest stars in, in racing, is going to be absent for, for a period of time. And we have to remember that he had three months off over a cocaine ban, which was um, handed out uh, sort of this type of time in uh, the end of 2020. Uh, so clearly there is going to be a period when he will not be around and not be available to take part in races. And I just repeat uh, the, the whole thing very quickly. You know, he is genuinely a really bright star, bright in terms of skill, uh, champion jockey, all those uh, uh, successes uh, every year. So bright in that from that point of view and just bright in terms of being the star out of the saddle as well so you know when he says that he's let down and the various um, different groups he said he'd let down well there will be plenty of people uh, who will feel let down uh, and of course this comes on top of uh, a, a, a difficult a challenging time for british racing the ongoing fallout from the robbie dunn and brownie frost case uh, we're, we're expecting news imminently uh, from the High Court in London uh, as regards Freddie Talitsky and um, him suing fellow ex-jockey Graham Gibbons after that fall at Kempton. Uh, and just on a much more practical terms in terms of challenge for, for racing in Britain at the moment, um, you know, COVID restrictions are, uh, are um, uh, well, they're back in to an extent not to the extent they were uh, at the height of the pandemic, but, but those are going to be tested uh, this coming weekend. So, yeah, these are, these are challenging times for, for, for British racing. And um, Oshin Murphy clearly is a, is a big part of these challenging times. This wasn't the, the only significant story yesterday, far from it, because uh, news broke uh, just after we uploaded yesterday of a, a split between Michael Owen, uh, the uh, former England star, and Tom Dascombe 
uh, the, the man who's been training at Owen's Manor House stables uh, for a, a dozen years and, and with significant success as well. So Daskin will have to find other premises from which to operate. And uh, I think as part of a, a wider restructure, as I understand it, Owen will uh, be needing somebody to, to train horses from his lavishly appointed training establishment, Cornelius. What did you make of this? Yeah, well, clearly this has been uh, an enormous story in British racing over the last decade and a bit. Uh, Tom Dascombe training not just in a high-profile way with Michael Owen, one of the best-known sports people uh, in Britain, turning from football uh, to horse racing, um, but, uh, but training successfully as well. Um, and uh, just looking at the numbers here uh, of the numbers of winners that Tom Dascombe has trained, in recent seasons, numbers like 79, 62, 75, 77 winners. Uh, and uh, in uh, this season so far, I think he had his 59th success of the year at, uh, at Subtle uh, on the day that uh, this, this news broke. So it was high profile because you, you're bringing together, the coming together of two great houses, football and horse racing, in uh, the form of Michael Owen um, uh, as a racehorse owner, a breeder and a backer of the stables close to the town of Malpas in, in Cheshire. Um, and um, big numbers of horses in the yard as well. 85 horses, I think, uh, in the stable um, at, uh, at the moment, something like that. So this has been high profile. Uh, there's been plenty of success, particularly with Owen's own horse, Brown Panther. Um, and it's come to an end after 12 years, sacked after 12 years as uh, the various parts of the written media have said today. Uh, Michael Owen, um, in a tweet, uh, saying they'd parted on great terms. I think he used the expression uh, that uh, he'd be missed Tom Dascombe uh, there as well. I think Tom Dascombe a little bit taken aback that a tw he, he was, he'd been given the news a couple of days ago, having returned from a holiday. Uh, and um, to see it tweeted, I think, took him a little bit uh, by surprise. But he has certainly said to those that have uh, spoken to him, um, you know, I'm not going, uh, he clearly is going somewhere in terms of uh, new premises, but he's not going anywhere in terms of getting out of racing or anything like that. And you look at the, the number of horses, 85 horses, and clearly looking through the list of them, um, the, the, the two that have won most uh, races this season, as far as I can see, have both won five. Uh, actually exemplify the situation here because clearly Michael Owen himself, um, who who um, who started this lavish, well-appointed uh, establishment, as you said, and has uh, been backed by the businessman Andrew Black as well, who made a lot of money out of Betfair. Uh, some of those horses uh, clearly involve Michael Owen's ownership. So Flaming Rib is a horse that's won five races this year, and one of the owners is down as Owen. So presumably that won't be going anywhere. And then you look down the list of winners, horse called K-Fast Warrior, owned by Midland Park Racing, uh, which has won five races as well. So some of, them are, some of the horses are connected directly to Michael Owen. Uh, others won't be. Uh, and um, presumably some will be moving and, uh, and some won't be. But um, yeah, t 12 years. I, th I think we, when we were chatting earlier on, uh, you, you said 12 years. Not, not a bad innings to be together in a situation like that. And when it is a sort of master-servant, inevitable master-servant type association, that is different to a trainer just being the, uh, the overall boss. Yeah, and for all, I'm sure that Tom Dascombe is, is smarting a little at the moment. I think he can reflect on a job pretty well done uh, in, in a right. dozen years, but uh, Michael Owen will be seeking a successor, and Dascombe has set the bar in terms of his uh, training abilities, at any rate, pretty high.
and uh, just to, to add about him, he is one of the great stories of racing in um, since the turn of the well, since actually the 1990s. Tom Daskam, an okay jump jockey, worked for Martin Pipe, rode 80, 90 winners, that that kind of number, uh, and then um, somebody with with I think practically no uh, horsey connections from the southwest of England. You know, having done that, learned a lot from Martin Pipe, worked for, for Mike DeCock, the great South African trainer, worked for Ray Beckett uh, as well uh, in Britain, uh, trained at uh, Lambourne at one stage. And he has climbed the greasy pole with, with no sort of advantages to start off with. And he's climbed pretty much uh, to the top. And that was a very attractive uh, association with him training plenty of winners and that link to Michael Owen and the link to football and plenty of footballers as well. I know Jordan Henderson, the Liverpool captain, is uh, involved there. So Alex Ferguson is involved there as well. And they seem to particularly specialise in success at their two local tracks, at Chester uh, and at Haydock. And uh, there will be, uh, as, as you rightly say, uh, he will feel uh, bruised at the moment, no doubt, Tom Dasker. But when the dust settles, he will reflect on those 12 years and uh, there'll be a lot of happy memories of, uh, of a job well done. Well, we talk quite a bit on the podcast lately about uh, entry requirements to race courses. This is mainly because of the evolving situation with the pandemic. But also you'll have noticed that we've spoken a little about Chelmsford City, who've uh, added some uh, identity uh, processes for, for getting into the race course, which I've, I've been a little critical of myself. Uh, Neil Graham is the director of racing at Chelmsford City. And Neil, I know you wanted to just maybe explain, put a bit of perspective, get us to understand why you are adding these additional um, ID protocols to get into the race course. Yes, of course. I know some people might perceive these sort of protocols and ID scannings as being slightly sort of big brother or even an infringement on people's civil liberties. But we at Chelmsford have been increasingly concerned by the, uh, the sort of level of antisocial behaviour and some of it quite violent we've seen on other race courses. Um, there was a notable incident in the owners and trainers bar at Newmarket Racecourse this autumn where a fight broke out um, with foul language and generally just totally unacceptable behaviour. And it was our feeling that bringing in um, ID scanning would help to keep tabs on who was coming into the race course to deter a certain perhaps kind of person who might indulge in that kind of violence because they would feel uncomfortable um and we just generally feel it would keep our guests here um, more safe more secure and, and just create a nicer environment for everyone at, at the race course here um you know, there seems to be in a sort of perhaps a slight shift in society over the last 10 to 20 years where there seems to be more violence. And, um, and uh, we just don't feel that's acceptable on the race course. You know, we want to create a nice environment for people to come to here. And that was really the sort of rationale behind this. So what sort of ID do you need? Is it photo ID, so driving licence or passport? Yes, it is. Some form of photo ID. Um, obviously, it's all done under sort of GDPR rules, and so we are merely just sort of checking that you are who you say you are. And obviously, if there is any sort of incident, then we know who you are if you committed that violence. Um, but, but, but we're not sort of checking up on anybody in any other sort of slightly underhand or, you know, an unattractive way. 
But if you if you take if you take a look at somebody's driving license or passport when they come in, you're not storing that data in any sense. So then, even if you see them uh, having a fight and capture it on CCTV, you still can't quite be sure of who they are, can you? Even though you've checked their ID. No, um, I, I'd have to check exactly what the GDPR rules on this as to how long we keep that that data for. But it is for a very short amount of time um, because obviously, you know, the GDPR regulations are very tight. Uh, but what I'm saying is that you you're you're not you're not going to take a scan of a passport or a or a driving license. You're just going to, you're just going to look at it. So you, you, that, that's my point is that if if somebody then does engage in criminal behaviour on your premises. Are you actually going to have any clearer idea of who they are, even though you've had a look at their their photo before they walk in? Well, I suppose we at least we know the people coming here are who they purport to be. So nobody's coming in on any sort of false ID. So, um, I mean, yes, if people then choose to indulge in sort of bad behaviour, then you know, obviously we've got CCTV around the place, and um, we would then have to sort of try and chase them down, hopefully before they leave the premises. Um, but no, no, we don't have any sort of record of their, you know, names and addresses. No, because we're not allowed to keep that sort of information. But really, so the bottom line is, you're just seeking to reassure your patrons that you've you've got the the best interests of their uh, of their security at heart. Very much so. Yes, we just want Chelmsford to be a, a nice, comfortable place for people to come to, particularly during this sort of Christmas party time when people are likely to perhaps drink more than they should and just so they can enjoy themselves in a totally safe and secure environment um you know we want chelmsford to be a sort of a a beacon of light if we can make it that way um for people um so they can come here and have we just have a thoroughly enjoyable time you know we are an entertainment venue we can never forget that Uh, neil graham there director of racing from chelmsford city Racecourse. now back to disciplinary matters uh, Irish jockey Tom Joseph Kelly has received a four-year suspension, three of which are suspended, um, provided he cooperates with uh, medical officer Dr. De- Jennifer Pugh after metabolites of cocaine were found in his system at Killarney on July the 15th. So he's off for at least a year, uh, Cornelius. And uh, the Irish authorities, having had a spate of these incidents, are, are taking no prisoners now. And I think the British authorities will be um, be watching with interest and uh, it'll be giving uh, them food, food for thought. The feeling is that the pretty standard six-month penalty, which is handed down um, to those who, um, who give a positive on cocaine, there is a feeling, you know, that six months isn't necessarily, um, it, well, not isn't necessarily, is not really uh, proving very much of a deterrent. And uh, there are plenty of people who would like to see the penalties increased. Clearly, that's a, a, a longer penalty, and if you, you know, a very long penalty if you if you consider the suspended part of the sentence as well. Yeah, and this this combination of tough justice but but rehabilitation combined in Ireland seems to have worked already because amateur rider Luke McGuinness is going to return at Christmas after serving his punishment for the same offence, and Dr. Pugh described him as positively unrecognisable over the last twelve months. So that is obviously something that has worked well in McGuinness's case. So the, the template has been you know, put into practice for, uh, for, for Kelly as well. So um, we, clearly, we clearly wish him all the best. Let's talk about today's racing, Cornelius, because um, whatever time you're listening to this, you are either about to enjoy or will have enjoyed the best novice hurdle of the season, which takes place at Ascot. 14, 20 hours 
um, British time, uh, the Howden Kennel Gate uh, hurdle race. Uh, and uh, this is a race that uh, has frequently been a good indicator of uh, for the future uh, over the years. And um, uh, this is a, a, an absolutely outstanding race this year. John Bond, £570,000 uh, worth, favourite for the Supreme Novice Hurdle, facing a significant examination. This horse, the brother of, uh, of Duvan, which won the Supreme Novice Hurdle in, in 2015, as well as being a multiple grade one winner, unbeaten so far, 15 length win in a point to point, success in a bumper and one from one over hurdles, trained by Nicky Henderson uh, for JP McManus. Uh, and um, clearly, uh, in this Novice Hurdle this afternoon, uh, there will be a significant examination of John Bond because if you look at the other contenders for this race, you've got I Like to Move It, carrying a penalty, trained by Nigel Twiston Davis, unbeaten over hurdles at Worcester, Cheltenham and Cheltenham. Colonel Mustard, a welcome raider uh, in, um, in, uh, in Britain from Ireland from the stable of Lorna Fowler in County Meath, has got some intriguing form uh, when second at Punchestown. Uh, behind Echoes in Rain in the spring, beaten three and a quarter lengths. You've got L.A. Bell for the Skeletons, eight and a half length winner at Newbury, uh, beating a horse with no name for the Henderson team. And then you've got Napper's Hill, trained by Paul Nichols, five from five uh, so far. So you have got uh, a race when you, you, you want all five to run really important and, uh, and promising races today because you've got five really interesting names going forward to the top novice hurdles um, in 2022, at the early part of 2022. So really looking forward to uh, that race as part of a, of a two-day bonanza uh, at Ascot with the long walk hurdle taking place uh, on, the, on the second day, on tomorrow, Saturday. And just sort of a quick couple of headlines from uh, that race. Uh, buzz for the Henderson team, Nico de Boinville, clearly uh, a really uh, a horse very much uh, on the up at the moment. Time Hill, uh, just uh, beaten last year. Ronald Pump, champ is back as well. John Joe O'Neill Jr. is going to be riding that over hurdles tomorrow. And Paisley Park has a new jockey in Tom Bellamy because Aidan Coleman is suspended. And Fergus Gregory, who's one of the young riders of the jump season so far, doing really well, uh, getting a big opportunity on Thomas Darby, trained by his boss, uh, Ollie Murphy. So um, all in all, uh, a really good couple of days to take us towards the Christmas period, then a small break. And then, goodness gracious, we're, we're, we're into King George territory and Welsh Grand National territory just after Christmas. Lots to look forward to. So although... You know, there's a lot of doom and gloom around and some some headlines which make people feel uncomfortable. There is a lot of uh, good Christmas cheer as well to, to warm everybody up in the days ahead. Well, it's time now to check in with our, our monthly visit with our Godolphin Flying Start trainees. I'm really pleased to welcome Margot Herrings to the show. Uh, Margot's based here in, in the UK most of the time, but has spent time in Ireland with, with Ger Lyons, has done a, an open university degree at the same time, and is now... Uh, embarking on this exciting chapter of her life and is also one of the brains behind the New Godolphin Flying Start podcast. Um, hi Margot, how are things going? Yeah, thanks very much for having me Nick. Yeah, it's all going well. Uh, we're just preparing to finish our UK phase. It's actually quite a short phase, it's only about six weeks but we we managed to kind of cram in loads of loads of different things. So we've obviously been at the Tassels, Foles and Mare sales um, going around with various agents. We also do lots of visits to sort of studs in the area. We've been to Shadwell 
the National Star Chivley Park, as well as lectures, sort of guest visits and things like that. So we've been up to lots of lots of different things. And a, a big learning experience for you, I'm sure. But you did, as I say, spend significant time with Joe Lyons in Ireland. I'd imagine um, that is a that in itself is is something that's been been pretty formative in your in your life so far. Yes, definitely. Um, I moved to I moved to Ireland in 2018 and did the Irish National Stud course. And I'd originally gone to Jazz thinking that I would just be there for a year. And actually, it was the beginning of a sort of golden period for him with Siskin and even so, and that great that great relationship with Judmont. So I ended up staying for two more seasons. Um, and yeah, it was just amazing. I absolutely loved it. I'm fascinated to know what he's like to work for because I, I I very much enjoy his contributions to to the shows and to the pod. And he's a you know independent thinker, and he's always got something to say. What's it, what's it what's it like to be part of his team? It's fantastic. Like we, it would be quite a small team in terms of riders. There would only be about fifteen maximum of us, and it's all all made up of sort of ex ex-top jockeys we've obviously got Colin Keane, Gary Carroll, um, Young, Sam Ewing, uh, Davey Condon, all, all guys like that so even just riding in their company is pretty a pretty great thing to be a part of and Joe himself is an absolute stickler for detail you know he'd be out there every single morning um, and he'd watch he'd watch every single horse every single move they make so he's um he's very on the ball he'll get up in the mornings and he'll be the one to go around and and feed them all at first thing before we get there um so that was a great that was a great environment to be part of having done that and having had such great experience and having done the irish national stud course why did you feel the need to sort of further your education sort of even more and 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 do the flying start growing up i'd had a lot of hands-on experience we had breakers and things at home and I grew up in a sort of sports horse racing environment but I was always quite conscious that I needed more sort of business and leadership kind of experience because I I didn't take the conventional routes regarding university I left I left school after my A-levels and then decided I wanted to get stuck straight into straight into the industry um, and then obviously did my did my long distance degree alongside that but I felt that I I just needed a bit more of that business know-how and also like the the exposure that you get from from being on the course you're obviously when you have a full-time job you don't necessarily have the opportunity to go and visit all these places and I've probably seen more of Newmarket this time around than I have you know ever before having grown up here so um, that was really something that I was conscious of um, heading into you know looking forward for my for my career so that was the thought process behind it. And you must now tell us, because I know you're one of the key drivers and brains behind the new Godolphin Flying Start podcast, which we're very keen to support here. Uh, the next episode is about to, about to go. Yeah, so they're about, they're about to drop the next episode uh, later on today. Um, and we, we were really keen to get on kind of young, young guests um, that people thinking of getting onto the Flying Start could relate to. So we actually... Um, spoke to Mimi and Violet of WH Bloodstock. Um, they obviously completed the course um, a few years ago, and when we spoke to them, it was just it was great to hear from their perspective how how the course helped them um, build their business um, and kind of looking forward to the future. What what they're hoping to how they're hoping to progress, and just a little insight into the into the sales market this year and things like that. 
Um, and then we also spoke to Martina Dempsey, who is a new coordinator for us in Ireland. Um, and she would be really hot on the on the recruitment um, for the Flying Start and things like that. So, yeah, big push to kind of get young people thinking about doing the course, um, thinking of applying. There's loads of details on the website, the Godolphin Flying Start website, and all our details as well. So if there was anyone thinking of applying this year or applying in the future, then we'd all love to hear from you. And we're all here to give advice and, and have a chat with you. Well, the online auction house Thoroughbid offer their latest sale on Sunday. Well, it goes live on Sunday. Will Kinsey, their co-founder, is with me now. Uh, Will, it seems to be something a little bit different or a slightly different emphasis with each passing sale. What have you got for us this time? Yeah, Nick, this is probably um, uh, one of our most exciting sales so far um, because we've got a good selection of horses from broodmares, point of pointers, and some exciting horses from France because um, we've got James Reevely working for us on the team sort of uh, selecting horses in France so he's got some really good horses there and from a point to point point of view we've launched a bonus scheme called the point to rules bonus which is to try and incentivize people to look to buy uh, pointers and the bonus works that if they win first time out under rules having been bought through one of our sales they'll either qualify for a for a five or 15 grand bonus. So the five grand bonus is any horse bought out of a point to point in Ireland. And if it's bought out of a point to point in England and wins first time out, it's an extra 10 grand. So totaling 15. So um, yeah, we've got some very exciting prospects. What lots are you pinning your hopes on mainly? Well, look, I say we've got a good selection there. There's, uh, there's a couple of nice, uh, well, there's a few nice broodmares in there. Uh, there's, a, just, there's a mare there called Mind Story, who is a, she's in Falco, Falcon. she's a winning half-sister to grade one winner, Master Dino. There's potential broodmare in Diamond Gate, who's black type elite mare from the family of Royal Gate, and more recently, General Miller and Martello Sky, who went at Cheltenham, was it, last weekend. So there's some exciting ones. Um, and then the French horses, James Reeves worked really hard with these. Got some really nice ones there. There's uh, a mare called Horenzo, which is a she's a progressive three-year-old daughter of Maresca Sorrento, and she was second in the class one her, class one hurdle at Poe last time. Um, Flash Davier. Now she's an exciting three-year-old filly um, by the highly sought-after Dr. Dino, who has been pulling up trees in in recent sales. Uh, she was a winner at Compiègne last time, and, and James Reevely rode her, liked her very much. Said she could be a potential Fred Winter horse, so that's very exciting. Um, uh, Hupeka Detai, who's a four-year-old son of Coco Rico, another commercial stallion. He's a half-brother to the grade three winning Dika Detai, and he's a winner of two from five, winning uh, class two at Poe last time. So that's another exciting one. And there's two more from the French scene. There's, there's Y, who's a four-year-old gelding by Tin Horse, and he's two from two. He actually won one on the flat for them winning over hurdles at Poe on his second start. And he's a big scope you saw who looks an exciting prospect. Um, and then there's Bidham, uh, Hidden Behu, who's a four-year-old son of no risk at all, another very commercial stallion. He won over fences in good style on his second start over fences at Poe. And again, he's a tall, rangy sort um, who should improve with time. There's a bright, bright future. And then when we come to the pointers, I'll, I'll pick out one Irish one and one English one. Uh, there's... Grandero Bello, who is a five-year-old son of the Great Pretender, uh, and he's from the leading Irish Academy of the Monbeg Stables, uh, and he won last weekend in extremely taking fashion by six lengths at 
Bolter, and he gained a point-to-point writing, rating of 91 plus. So he is eligible for the point-to-point rules, uh, point-to-rules bonus of five grand. And then on Sunday at Barbary Castle, Western Zephyr, who is a son of Westerner, he's a four-year-old son of Westerner, from the well-renowned Charlie and Fran Post stable. Uh, and he was very, very, very impressive on debut. Um, and he won by 25 lengths. And he's eligible for the point to rules bonus of 15 grand. Uh, yeah, and I watched that race this morning. And yeah, he was, he was very, very good. Very good. Will, thanks so much. Well, it's Friday. This is one of my favourite segments of the week. Any week, it's the Global Rankings Update with James Willoughby and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. And today, James and I are going to focus on the world's top 10 jockeys. We've had so much going on in the last couple of months. We possibly haven't given this the due regard we ought to. But at the end of the year, it's well worth it. And here we go. At number 10 is the Japanese star Yuga Kawada, whose exploits most recently in Hong Kong on Breeders' Cup filly and mare turf winner Loves Only You have attracted global attention. At nine, with 70 group races in three years and the rides on maximum security and essential quality, is American star Louis Sire. At eight is Ryan Moore, a long-time number one in this list. It's a low watermark for him, number eight, with just 33 group ones in the last three years. At seven is Christophe Lemaire, French-born, of course, but now Japan-based, where he's won 51 graded races in three years and has had the rides on Almond Eye and Gran Allegria, two genuine stars. At six is Irad Ortiz in the headlines for the wrong reasons of late but prolific in the United States with a 23% strike rate in graded stakes over three years, including wins on Life is Good and Golden Pal. At five, a very good season again for Flavian Pra, French-born but now based on the west coast of the United States. He's ridden big stakes winners on Hot Rod Charlie and Rom Bauer, 98 graded stakes over three years. At four, the highest climber in this list is, of course, William Buick. What a season he's had with big race wins on Adair, Hurricane Lane, three Breeders' Cup successes. You name it, he's ridden it. At three is Joel Rosario, consistently productive at the top level over the last three years with 106 graded stakes victories at 20% and stars Nick's go and Jackie's Warrior flying his flag in 2021. At two, and he's just slipped down a peg, Yes, it's that man, Frankie Dottori, 51 just the other day, but no signs of slowing. 92 group and graded stakes wins in three years, including 42 elite-level successes at 23%. Palace Pier is flag-bearer in 2021, and that leaves room at the top for James McDonald, the Kiwi-born Australian-based star, 94 group races in three years. And get this, all the household names in Australia are McDonald's. Very elegant. Nature Strip, Zaki. And what's more, James Willoughby, he's a friend of the show. He's a, he's a great rider, a great sportsman. And uh, punters in, in Australia talk about paying the J-Mac tax, meaning that you have to take a slightly shorter price whenever he gets on one. But boy, as somebody that watches Australian racing on a regular basis, he is absolute box office to watch. Absolutely tremendous rider. And we've Long commented that only really his one or two of his travails previously uh, with the, the rules have kind of restricted his progress up this chart. And now he's put those travails behind him. He's risen to where he belongs at the top of the pile. Just a, a word on how our rankings are compiled. There are four main criteria, which is the volume of success, the strike rate of success, the rarity value of success in that rider's particular domain. So, for example, Hong Kong riders get a lot of credit for their graded uh, group race wins because... There are so few of them. In America, riders there are debited uh, somewhat because the, the, the multiplicity of uh, opportunities there. 
And the last criteria is the quality of the opposition that a rider has, uh, has competed against the other jockeys. So we compile these rankings just as if the jockeys are horses, if you will. And uh, so we build a, a, a classification. So the jockeys that go to the top have really had to do it the hard way. They haven't done it by racking up loads of numbers against soft opposition. Um, they've done it because they are elite and they prove it day in, day out, riding against other top-level foes. Okay, so that leads me neatly on to my next question, which I'm sure a lot of people will be shouting at the moment. Hang on, Ryan Moore was just crowned the world's best jockey at the recent Longines ceremony. How come he's only number eight here? Because TRC Global Rankings are the, the best objective measure of what actually happens is around the world. And Ryan Moore, we, we measure here not a rider's ability independent of his mounts, his or her mounts. We're measuring a kind of power rating, if you will, the influence factor. And there's no disguise in that Ryan Moore is not the fourth on the world stage, through no fault of his own in recent years. He's had the most number of rides of any of these riders, 522 group races in the equivalent last three years. Second is Joel Rosario and 521. Yet, he's only got a 16% strike rate, despite having uh, the pick of some very powerful mounts um, of Aidan O'Brien and, and others. And, and that accurately reflects where he, where he stands. As I say, he, no rider's been at number one in this list longer than Ryan Moore. But really, the sort of Aidan O'Brien's rather sort of haphazard sort of strike rate over the last three years has counted against Moore and led to him slipping. William Buick, by contrast, is on the march. If he continues on the same trajectory, James, if he has another season next year, like he's had this, will he just end up at number one? Well, it's between him and McDonald, yeah. They're the two most progressive riders. I don't expect Joel Rosario is going to go anywhere, accidents permitting. And I, I, I think that it's between those two riders, really, because they're both on a tremendous upward trajectory. Yes, Flavian Pratt has made a lot of gains in 2021. And he's another one who deserves a lot of credit for those that, that watch American racing. He's tremendous to watch, as you yourself uh, fully aware of, Lucky. But, and there are some other kind of riders further down the list that, that could potentially make an impact but really this year has seen the ascent of Buick, McDonald, uh, Flavion Pratt and one or two kind of names that we were used to seeing at the top Moore, Christophe Lemaire and then Mike Smith and Christophe Sumian have been riders who have slipped down the list a bit. So is it just an age thing? Surely the, the presence of Dottorian too suggests not necessarily it's a, it's a function of opportunity as much as age. That's right. But of course, age and opportunity are correlated. Yeah. So we're measuring the jockey's impact and that depends on the jockey's reputation. So there's a circular process at work here, which is that the more a jockey wins, the more people think that, he, that his, his or her success is down to their ability. When often it's, it's kind of going down to going around on the right horses. But there is some quality that's irrespective of athleticism that these top riders possess, which is the ability to convince others in their domain that they are elite performers. And that's true of every profession on the planet. And these characters, McDonald, Dottorio, Rosario, they're not just great writers, but they're people who impress those around them with their knowledge and authority about where horses should run and how they have run. And this being global thoroughbred rankings and our focus on racing as a global sport, it, you know, nowhere is this more evident than in the elite jockey. Because there are some jockeys who can, who can do well in their own in their own backyard against their day day in day out peers and there is a, a subsection i would put to you that can achieve on the global stage and there are loads that just can't 
Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe we should mention Jim Crowley as well here, is that he's by far the highest ranked rider of the late Hamdan al-Maktoum. And that is probably down to what you say. He's made that transition from being uh, a champion jockey in Britain due to volume and riding day in, day out at a high level to actually transferring those skills to you know, the, the highest levels of competition. Another rider that's opposite to him is, who's very, very good, I feel, is William Pike. He's a, a really, really good rider, and a lot of his success comes in the west of Australia, where he doesn't face elite competition. And though, thus, if anyone actually gave him a, a, a really top job on a regular basis, like McDonald or some of the top Aussies, I'm sure he could do better than number 21, where he is at the moment. But he has a 22% strike rate in, in group races in, Aust- in uh, Western Australia and elsewhere. He does ride in metropolitan areas as well. Um, but uh, it, he, he really is a good example of someone, if you wouldn't necessarily know him if you were just a, a fan of global sport, but if you, get, if you know that where we rank him and you watch him, you can see it straight away. He really is a fantastic rider to watch. And there are many others in this list. I think we're really spoiled at the moment. I think we're going through an absolutely tremendous period in, uh, in world racing of these top jockeys because we've got the former generation who are still as strong as ever in Dottori, and we've got the younger riders coming through the system. Mikel Barcelona uh, for, is, is up to 13 this year. Vincent Ho, we've seen what he can do many times over in Hong Kong when he's given a chance. And it's absolutely terrific. Wherever you go, there's a colony of top riders, and we're absolutely spoiled, I think. Well, thanks to uh, to James, to, to Neil, to Margot, and to Will. And Cornelius is still here, and Cornelius has got a tip for you for this weekend or today yeah. or whenever. I thought I'd go to to Ascot to the bumper race at Ascot today. It's the three thirty. Give Lexicon Recruitment uh, a name check here. The Lexicon Recruitment Championship Open National Hunt Flat Race, and I was really taken with a horse called Henri the Second um, when uh, successful at Chepstow. The horse is trained by Paul Nichols. Harry Cobden will ride in the colours of Martin Broughton and friends. And uh, although the form uh, actually uh, gives slightly mixed messages from Chepstow, Henri II, when successful on the 26th of October, put in a really taking performance. And I'm expecting Henri II to be Henri I at Ascot this afternoon. Cornelius, thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. What eventful week it's been. That was Friday, December the 17th. We will be back with you on Monday. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.